taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton. As we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, welcome aboard, everybody. Welcome to Bellator Christie. We've been praying for you. Uh, question, have you been checking out the Resurrection series that's going on uh, at the website? Uh, it's getting some great reviews. This last one, um, uh, on the, the fourth one, um, is the uh, Empty Tomb. And I tell you what, um, it's got a lot of good information in it. Um, we 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 have some just amazing... Uh, facts and some truths in it. There's some uh, logic that's being used in in some of the arguments that uh, that that makes sense. It's common sense logic, uh, you could say. And uh, so, anyway, why don't we welcome on Brian Chilton, the man that wrote that article? Hello, Brian. <laughs> Thank you, Curtis. It's a joy and privilege to be <laughs> here as with you as always, and just uh, thankful for what God's doing uh, through this series, and um, just excited. I mean, to, as you said, a lot of these things are common sense, th- you know, issues, and uh, but things if we, you know we, we really haven't stopped to consider as we're doing these historical studies, right. considering the the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Yeah, and you you use a little bit of Gary Habermas uh, tactic in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get, you know, actually, this Good last stuff. one came from uh, one of the classes I did uh, with Doctor Habermas, and he and challenged us to to write instead of writing a paper per se, to write an evidence based line of argumentations. So uh, you know what you see mm-hmm. in that last article with the twelve lines of argumentation defending the empty tomb. Yeah, that's kind of what we were supposed to do. Just Nothing extensive, but have evidence-based, back it up, evidence-based arguments, simple arguments defending a particular aspect of miracles or the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the very first one that comes up, it says the gospel was first preached in Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was crucified, which would have made it easy for an inquirer to check the tomb. If a person desired to invent a story, the last place they would tell the story would be in the very location where the event supposedly occurred. The enemies of Jesus would only need to check the tomb to see if it was empty. That's what I mean by logic. That's yeah. just using simple simple thought, you know, at that time period, you know, and, and how does Christianity explode out of the Jewish hub of Jewish thought, Jewish teaching, the temples there, these were these were all Jewish people. Why would they convert to Christianity or to a Messiah 
if it didn't happen. Exactly, exactly. And there's a lot more we could say there to that. And I think next oh, week maybe we we talked about maybe doing this next week about maybe just looking at some material thus far in the series and yeah. kind of just looking over some questions that you know that, that could come out of this material. Yeah, but one of the things that, that we need to remember about this as well is one of my favorites in the line of argumentations is the fact that not only did it happen in Jerusalem, but Joseph of Arimathea, the message was early, okay? Mm-hmm. It not only happened in Jerusalem, the message is early. Everyone knew Joseph of Arimathea because he was a very public name. You're not going to list Joseph of Arimathea if, it, if he were not, in fact, the person who who buried Jesus because um, right. this material is coming fairly early. And so you're right. not going to use that name unless it had happened. And then everyone would have known where Joseph of Arimathea's right. tomb was. It was a new tomb, hadn't been used, very close to the crucifixion site as well. Mm-hmm. So it would have been a piece mm-hmm. of cake to go check it out and see whether or not right. there was a truth behind it or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot there in that we could really go, and boy, do I want to go, but yeah, we got to stick to what our plan is here, so. <laughs> well, this, uh, yeah, this is our last week on the Sermon on the Mount, so, you know, next right. week, you know, maybe we can jump into some of these issues, and especially right before Easter, it all, all kind of worked out right. perfectly in the God's timing. Right. So, we got an email response uh, from, from uh, someone. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to respond uh, to this this person, but I want to thank him. Uh, his name is Glenn, uh, Glenn Andes, and he writes us at Bellator Christie saying, uh, Brian, I came across your website this morning while doing some online research. I have to write and let you know that I love what I see. Uh, your doctrinal position is great. Your apologetics perspective is wonderful, and the depth of your explanations on various topics uh, resonates with me. Thanks so much. And we want to thank Glenn for a very encouraging uh, email sent to us at Bellator Christie. And so uh, be sure to submit uh, if you have any questions or like just to, to leave us a comment or something like that. We, we greatly encourage you to do so. Uh, things like this are encouraging for us to read and, and let us know yeah. that what we're doing on the online ministry is making a difference. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And, and that's and that's uh, not only that, but engaging with us um, allows us to um, direct um, maybe where some series go or maybe the next podcast or anything along those lines. It helps us um, helps us track where our listeners are at. Yeah, and you also can find a, a Bellator Christie uh, site on Facebook as well. Not only at the website, but you can also find us on Facebook. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I mean, even there, you can leave us a message if you like. Or I mean, there, there are several yeah. ways you can get in contact with us at Bellator Christie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have some SBC news. You want to go ahead and. Yeah, uh, this this was breaking news this past week. It's you know not really ultra surprising, uh, but Beth Moore. Uh, this was posted by Christianity. <coughs> excuse me, Christianity Today that Beth Moore says that uh, she no longer considers herself a Southern Baptist. Um, she had several issues going on with, uh, not necessarily just the Southern Baptist Convention, but the way things sometimes have been done. In churches, and, and the thing you got to understand about the Southern Baptist Convention is that no two churches are exactly the same. Southern Baptists pride themselves on what they call the autonomy of the local church, meaning that the local church is governed by itself, uh, for itself, by the people. 
And um, so she she told a religion news service in an interview last Friday that she considers herself no longer a Southern Baptist. And she says, and I quote, this is coming from the article on ChristianityToday.com dated um, March uh, 9th, uh, 2021. She says, I'm still a Baptist, and I quote, but I can no longer identify with Southern Baptists, Moore said in the phone interview. I love so many Southern Baptist people, so many Southern Baptist churches, but I don't identify with some of the things in our heritage that haven't remained in the past. And here it appears that she's talking about... perhaps racism in some places. Now, obviously, not every Southern Baptist is a racist, and and I think that would be very atrocious to make that kind of argument. Um, In fact, you know, I know many Southern Baptists, and and I don't know very many Southern Baptists who would be identified, I mean, with that. I mean, are there some who are in the Southern Baptist Convention, well, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are some about in every de- you know, denomination, if we want to be honest with it. But, but the reality is the Southern Baptist Convention came out of the Civil War time period uh, in, a, in a disagreement with the National Baptist Convention over the issue of slavery. That's how it got its start. It's an ugly way of getting a denomination started, but it is it is the truth. It is how it started. And Southern Baptists identified with the Southern perspective, and Northern Baptists identified with a Northern perspective. Uh, there have been many different ways that Southern Baptists have tried to distance themselves from their, their origin. Some have even thought about changing the name. I don't know that that's going to fly. Uh, it was attempted. didn't work. Uh, but um, but anyhow, I don't think this is the only reason she she claims to leave. She doesn't like or appreciate how some how um, s- the Southern Baptist Convention appears to view women. Now there have been abuses uh, toward women. Uh, in fact, there was a president of a Southern Baptist uh, seminary uh, that gave some very atrocious. Um, insights to a lady who who said who 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 uh, told him that uh, she had been raped, um, and or or individuals who had uh, said they had been suffering abuse at home. Uh, so that's not to say that these things haven't plagued the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, let's be honest, they have. And so, but she has she has some issues with the denomination, and you know the thing about it is. There are many good denominations out there, and so if she doesn't identify with the Southern Baptist, you know, denomination, um, then there are many from which she can choose. Now, another aspect she mentioned, according to Christianity Today's uh, expose on this issue, uh, she said said uh, that she doesn't like the supposed nationalism that she said she's found in Southern uh, Baptist churches. Again, I just want to clarify here. I've pastored four Southern Baptist churches, and no two, none of the none of the churches have been exactly alike. So again, it's very difficult to be fair about this. It's very difficult to say the Southern Baptist Convention holds to this or that. Now, the convention, the denomination may hold to certain things, but that certainly doesn't mean that every church in the Southern Baptist Convention holds to that issue. So, I think we need to be fair about this issue, um, but. You know she's entitled to do as she feels led, and and um, this is obviously the direction she feels led to to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, it'll be interesting to see see what goes from there. I I saw in the article that she's um, uh, potentially gonna maybe affiliate with the Presbyterian or Lutheran or something along them lines, and that's um, I I would I would think that she might be able to find home with some of that. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, th- there are s- several good denominations out there uh, from which you can choose. And, you know, if, 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 I'll leave it at that. You know, th- th- I think that would probably be the be- a good way, to, good way to end the segment is to say that there are many good Christians in many different denominations. And, you know, I, I, I was born in the Southern Baptist Church. I was ordained in a Southern Baptist Church, ordained with the Southern Baptist Convention. But uh, Curtis, you're with the AG Church. You know, Beltor Christie is a non-denominational entity. Um, I have I have family and friends who are Pentecostal, family and friends who are Lutheran, family and friends who are Presbyterian, and even some family and friends who are Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. And I consider them Christians, even though we're part of different denominations. So. There again, I think the body of Christ is larger than a denomination. And let me just say this: according to what the studies seem to suggest, uh, most most Christ, there's a growing trend to get away from large denominations. Anyhow, um, many younger Christians have less of a denominational mindset and more of a um, networking mindset. More of churches working together in a local area, more so than a national denomination. So um, there are even some. Tom Rayner has even suggested that uh, you know the days of large denominations may be limited in the future. Now, is that true? Is it not? You know, I don't know. Time will tell. But um, it'll be interesting to see. Interesting. Yeah. Question though: Will it? Would it be wise, or here, here, maybe I phrase this a little differently, is it unwise to go about and have large speaking events without being tied to um, an affiliated church or an affiliated church uh, group? Well, I guess it depends on, I guess it depends on what you mean by that. Um, there are, for instance, non-denominational churches that are very independent, and uh, there are some that are that are good churches. Uh, there are many non-denominational churches that may not be necessarily affiliated with any denomination. Um, that person may be able to speak in a large. Um, uh, there's a word I'm looking for, and it's not quite it, but a, a, lot, a plethora of different avenues which they could speak. But they have the the authority, or the or not the authority, but the backing of their church, you know, with them. I do think it's important that we are that we belong to that we belong to a church, and I think there are many reasons for this. Um, one is that we are under the watch care of a local church that that we are. Um, held accountable you know by the yeah. local church um, yeah. I think there is there's there's something special in fact uh, in many in many issues even with chaplaincy a chaplaincy wants most chaplaincy institute institutions want you to have the backing of your denominational affili- affiliation whether it be Methodist whether it be Baptist you know I forgot to add that I have many Methodist friends and family too um, 
but they want you to have the endorsement of that denomination mm-hmm. or the endorsement of a church. So I think it is important to have that, um, especially if you're speaking. Um, I think there is an importance to have that connection somehow with a local church in some form yeah. or fashion. Well, I guess the question really kind of comes on the heels of what we saw happen with now I'm not I'm not comparing or saying Beth Moore equal to Ravi Zacharias. Oh, sure. Really. That's yeah. not what I'm saying. But but the fact that he wasn't tied to a church to hold him accountable or to ask, hey, where have you been? What's going on? Um really lended itself to maybe allowing it to go where it did. Yeah. And so that I guess that's that's kind of what the question really is involved without having some people to that are within your group that can actually uh, you feel comfortable letting them ask questions, you know? Absolutely. And, and the reality is, you know, going back, not, you know, this is kind of changing gears a little bit, but just reiterating, uh, if, if Douglas Grutice, I heard him speak on this issue, and he said that if your opinion and your perspective barring it being a heretical perspective and not mentioning that but if you have a different take on things and your opinion and your in your mindset's not being appreciated or at least uh respected then maybe you need to find a different church home maybe you need to find a different denomination or something of that sort Mm -hmm. and i think he has a point in that so if if you are um a strong egalitarian and you're in a very strong complementarian church you know, it, unless that's something you can live with, then maybe you need to look for a different church or different denomination. Sure. Um, if if you are a um, not a political person and you're in a very political church, there again, unless you can live with that, it may be good to to look for a different place to worship of like-minded people. It doesn't, and that's not to say that that the other church is necessarily heretical or bad or anything like that. It just means that on these smaller issues that uh, we don't find agreement and we need to be with like-minded Christians. And Douglas Grutheis made an, an, another excellent point on his, on his discussion saying that it's very naive for us to think that we can go into a church or denomination and completely change their perspective overnight. Right. Just not going to happen. Just not going to happen. Right. Right. Well, we better get on to the the last of our Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 7, 7 through 23. You want to go ahead and read that? Yeah, and is this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this part, is this part 7, part 6, or part 7? 7, I think. (laughs) You know what, it's part (laughs) 8. Oh yeah, I thought yep, it was going to yep. be the seventh yeah, one on the seventh chapter, but but it is part eight. I had to go back to the website yep. to check yep. and see. I just did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I, could, I forgot because we had the first one was uh, basically a brief uh, overview of the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. So, yep. So, well, I'll go ahead and read good. the uh, passage. I know we're covering verses uh, seven on down to uh, verse twenty-three. It looks like verse twenty-three. Yep. So uh, this is coming from the CSB, saying, uh, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
Who among you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This, For this is the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule. Do unto others what you want them to do unto you. Uh, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road and the road broad that leads to destruction. I think it should be the road is broad, but anyhow, that's neither here nor there. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Hmm. Don't you love how practical Jesus' teachings are? I mean, for what I'm saying is, on the top surface, when you read this, it makes sense. You're like, well, yeah, I mean, you don't get, you don't get a different kind of fruit from a different kind of tree, and you don't get, you know, all these, it's it, it just, it, every single bit of it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, then you have to dig deeper to get even the bigger meaning of it. Once you get the bigger meaning of it, it's like you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. You know, once you once you see it, and then it, then you find a deeper meaning that even means more, and you can't unsee that now. And so it's just you sound a lot like really Augustine, cool. of, Augustine of Hippo. <laughs> That's exactly the way he approached scripture. Which, by the way, is what is advocated in the bibliology class we were talking about before the podcast. Right. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it's it's just cool as you read through the scriptures how you find, you know, um, it just for example the 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 sower of, of the seed, you know, um, that parable of the sower. Um, it, on the surface, it makes sense. You're like, oh yeah, no kidding. The, the you know the seed. It, you know, if it's on the rocks, it's going to come up quick. You're, you know, if it's on the if it's on the pathway, it's never going to sprout, et cetera, et cetera. And but then when you get into the deeper and deeper meaning of it, it, it just it it just fills you with, I I'd say fills you with encouragement, but also fills you with wisdom mm-hmm. to get through life. Most certainly. So, what is Jesus's focus? Uh, in instructing the believer to ask, seek, and knock. And you had a nice little acronym. Yeah, I did. This. I had an acronym for that, people. It's really cool. Um, it's it's ASK. 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 Ask, seek, <laughs> knock. It works. <laughs> yeah. Ask, seek, knock. Yep. 
So, you know, yeah. as, as I was approaching this scripture, I was coming at it from a hermeneutical, exegetical standpoint, realizing that that the, the scripture needs to be kept in its context. So, in order to understand this, we have to go back and look at what he's been talking about this entire message. And it's been ta- he's been talking about kingdom living. You know, so for instance, mm-hmm. in verses 1 through 6, we read last week that he's telling us to, um, to use discernment to, to be able to take first out the beam, the log in our own eyes before we'd attempt to try to take a splinter out of someone else's eye. So it means we first go to God and we, we, uh, we seek His righteousness. We seek His purity. We seek His holiness. Mm-hmm. So that's connecting back to the previous teachings that he's already mentioned. You know, chapter 6, um, he talks about the providence of God. So there is an aspect of, of, of God's providential care for us, you know, because James tells us you have not because you ask not. And, I, and mm-hmm. I would say that if you believe not, you're not going to ask. And if you don't ask, you're not going to receive. So believing that God can still continually do things for us, Excuse me. Is is incredibly incredibly important for us to see prayer being answered? Because if we don't believe that God can do it, and this isn't a name it claim it thing, it's more trusting in the power of God to come through. I mean, because even Jesus, there were certain times where he couldn't perform miracles, um, wasn't permitted to perform miracles because the people disbelieved as badly as they did. So he wasn't permitted by, by the Spirit of God to to perform certain miracles in certain places because of the disbelief found in that area. So when we come back to the passage of Scripture, this is connected back to the Beatitudes, where he's, he says anyone who hungers will be filled, anyone who thirsts, will be their, their thirst will be quenched. Uh, so the command to ask is tied to a promise of good things, and um, this this is also in Luke's interpretation in his parallel uh, in Luke. I think it's Luke six thirty three, maybe or no, no, that's Matthew six thirty three. Um, well, anyhow, whenever in, when Luke talks about the Sermon on the Plain, he says these the good things are interpreted as a spirit who transforms the disciple and makes him fit for the kingdom. And so, seeking uses the same Greek verb as seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And um, so the ancient people knocked on gates as well as on doors to request entrance. So Jesus says, I am the gate. Remember, I am the door, I am the gate, I am the way, truth, and life. So knocking on the gate of the kingdom, knocking through Jesus, seeking and asking, God opens the doors for the individual who seeks salvation, who seeks these things, righteousness, holiness, purity, these kind of things. And so he opens the door to those individuals. Now, is there also a providential aspect to this? Yeah, but I believe the providential yeah. aspect is probably more back in the sixth chapter where he talks about how God provides for our needs. Uh, but I think there is a connection back in this. Uh, so I'm, I'm not. What I'm trying to say is I don't think this is, is disregarding the importance to ask God for our daily needs. Uh, but I don't know that that's necessarily the primary point that Jesus is trying to present. I think the primary right. point is to ask God for spiritual insight, ask God for salvation, or and seek the righteousness of God, and then knock on the door of salvation, and God will open that door for you. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a good. responsiveness to 
the Spirit's call. That's, yeah, that's good. That's good. And gives you wisdom of how to deal with daily lives or daily life actions and, and uh, gives you the wisdom to be able to get through those days. And, and, and it says that's even more scripturally. It's, um, you know, he says, you know, pray for wisdom. Yeah. You know, in the Proverbs, it says pray for wisdom. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I have to go back and say that I kind of wonder if the reason we're not seeing the the move of the Holy Spirit. I mean, not that we can coerce the Spirit to do things that He doesn't want to do because it's all in His plan, all in His timing. But I wonder, because we've become so cynical and so skeptical, and and especially when we've become we become so um, when individuals and I'm not trying to pick on any any theological perspective here, but if we become too if a person becomes too strong of a cessationist to the point that they don't believe that God can move, then maybe that's the reason we're not seeing the Spirit move because there is a disbelief in the power of God to be able to provide for certain things. Right. Yeah. It's important. To, I think it's important to have a balance. So Absolutely. Um, so, are these petitions given once or repeated? Repeatedly. Here's the interesting thing, and I... And I and I put this for a reason. The Greek text, if you go into the Greek text, let me pull it up. I brought up the words, and it just threw me way back. Okay. Um, I, tete, I think is how you say this. And Iteo is is the, the root word. That means ask. Uh, the, the, um, the word seek is zeteo. Zeteo, Zeteo, and the word knock is Kralo. Uh, 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 Again, probably masquered the pronunciations. I took a year and a half of Greek and still can't pronounce it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow. It's all Greek to me. It's like, <laughs> somehow I knew that was coming. I don't know why I knew that was coming. <laughs> so, pastor joke, friends. It's just a pastor joke. <laughs> So this verb is found in the present uh, active imperative sense, um, and so the structure of this is so is such, in the imperative form, the structure is such that this is not a one-time deal. This is a repetitive action. So, so you know, it may even could be said, "Keep asking." and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you'll find. Keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. So it may be that you don't find the answers you're seeking immediately, but that doesn't mean that you should stop asking. Continuously ask. Continuously seek. Continuously knock. And then those things will come about. So it's not just a one-time prayer. It's a continuation of these prayers, and I think I think that uh, there's much to be said even in our own prayer lives um, that we we ask for something. Maybe God doesn't answer right away, but it may not be that His answer is no. It may be that the timing isn't right at the moment. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, I know He has to do this with me more times than I care to admit. Sometimes he has to teach us patience and wait. And I hate it when God tries to teach me patience because it drives me batty because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm a very impatient person. <laughs> yeah. But that's the whole but reason he does is, My suggestion is don't ever pray for patience. No, no, don't <laughs> ever pray for it because you'll hit every red it's light. It's coming anyway. Yeah. There's no need to pray for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
so what what does the answer tell us about the importance of the steadfastness of prayer? Well, I, I think this tells us that uh, prayer should be a continual thing. It's not a one-time deal. Uh, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. It's And prayer is more really for us than it is for anyone because it keeps us in communion with God uh, when we pray. I mean, God knows what we need. Jesus even tells us this. God knows what we need before we even ask it. It's not that God is unaware. You don't have to remind God of His promises because He knows His promises better than we do. But still, it's it's more of a communion that we have with God um, right. to keep knocking on the door. There's a, I think there's a parable Jesus gives where uh, talking about a person who was needing something from this individual at night and uh, the guy knocks on the door and the person That's says, right. hey, I'm asleep, I'm sleeping, go away. Right. And they keep, the guy keeps banging on the door saying, I need this, whatever it was, I can't remember what it was. I got, I, I got, uh, I got friends coming over and I need, to, um, I need to show them hospitality, so I need bread. Yeah, yeah, you need bread. So banging on the door, because it would be an embarrassing thing not to have the bread. You know, banging <laughs> on the door, help me, help me, help me. And the fi- guy finally says, all right, shut up already. Here, open the door. Here, have your bread and go on. Leave me alone. I want to go back to sleep. So, yeah. you know, but the whole principle in that is is not to be a nuisance, but the principle is to keep asking God, keep keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and the door will be eventually be open to you. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, uh, question three, what is the relationship between the human gift, uh, human gift giving and divine gift giving? Tell us about God's love for us. So it's interesting, uh, and I was looking this up in the commentary a while ago, so he talks about a son asking a father for bread, will he give him a stone? Mm-hmm. If he asks him for a fish, will he give him a snake? Well, interestingly, uh, in the uh, in ancient Israel, uh, and maybe even today, round loaves of bread re- resemble smooth brown stones. So can you imagine if your son or daughter asks you for a piece of bread or a loaf of bread and you give them a rock and they try to bite into it and they break every teeth in their mouth, tooth in their mouth? That wouldn't be a loving thing to do, Jesus says. Mm. Certain fish in the Sea of Galilee, interestingly, resembled snakes, especially when they're coiled up. So if they're wanting a fish, are you going to give them a snake? I don't know if they were poisonous or not. Interesting. So you know, if they're these, you have these snakes. Around look, here they are. Yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> you, you've got big critters out there, that, you know, too. <laughs> the critters that'll eat you, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, you have these fish in the Sea of Galilee. They resemble snakes. So if you if your child asks for a fish to eat, if you give him a snake, it's going to bite him and kill him. That's the evil thing to do. So Jesus is saying that if we as individuals like and and are able to give good gifts even though that we are morally evil compared to God's holiness, then how much more will the Father in heaven uh, give us good things to those who ask Him? So again, this this principle is, is picked up by James in his letter and, and again is taught that you have not because you ask not. And so Jesus even tells us that uh, that whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them. This is the law and the prophets, but this is connecting back to uh, we receive good things from God. We need, to, we need to be good to others as God is good mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. So there's that vertical so commandment with with you know love the Lord your God right. with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and strength, the and then the horizontal aspect too. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. And then the what does this say about heaven then? Heaven is going to be the the perfect gift that we could ever receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything good. And you know, my son and I were talking about this, and he was asking me. Um, I can't remember what it was he was asking me about, but it was something. You know, to some people it would seem silly, but. He asked, if the, but to him it was an important thing, and I told him I believe that if it's important to you now, I can see where God would allow it to be in heaven, you know, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. heaven is going to be the perfection of of um, God's gift to us. And you know, it's interesting. I was talking with a person, you know, uh, just today, and they were talking about how there's a you know spiritual aspect, there's a physical aspect. But the two are blended together kind of like a coin. If you can envision on one side of the coins is spiritual and the other side of the coins is physical, the coin is flipped one certain direction now. But as we pass through death, the coin is flipped to the other side. But then there's going to come a time where it's blended together, where there is no division, and it's going to be a perfect spiritual-physical blend uh, in the new creation. And so, um, you know... Heaven is going to be the per- God's perfect gift to us, and so it's hard to even envision how good heaven's going to be. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, you kind of have to ask: Is there going to be cell phones in in heaven? I hope not. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Um, would it even be necessary? You know, yeah, it, it, true. Yeah, and this is one thing Nicholas Vorderstorff talks about. About uh, and this interestingly, this is something that's picked up on near death experiences, where where people say that uh, you know, in their encounters in in the in the heavenly realm, that uh, people can move their mouths and communicate that way. But it was almost like a mind to mind connection, where you could even speak through mind. So would you even need cell phones in heaven? I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you want to play a video game on there, maybe God will let you let you have that if you want it. But would it be necessary? Throw them in the river. <laughs> well, there'd be many people who'd want to do that too, you know. <laughs> so, what does Jesus' teaching on the narrow gate say to the number of people who genuinely follow Christ? So, essentially, here, um, verses thirteen and fourteen is where this is found, and um, he is he's telling us that uh, narrow gate symbolizes the exclusive nature of Christ's kingdom is through mm-hmm. the Jesus is he says I am the gate and uh, so entrance requires the disciple to do the will of the father in heaven the gate that is wide indicates that um, that um, hell grants unrestricted interest and leads um, and many will enter its gates and the reason for this is quite simple um, to come through Christ to come through God we become God-centered people. That's not our nature, though. Um, we we like to think that the world revolves around us. We like to think that you know the world is our oyster, and however many platitudes we want to add add to that. But when we stop to consider the fact that it's not about God's plan, but about our plan, not about our plan, but God's plan, then it really changes the perspective of how we look at this. So we you know we go through Christ and realizing that. That that's the plan of God, and so um, the reason I think that the narrow gate is going to be leading to uh, existence without God is because we like to do things our own way rather than God's way, and so uh, that's why the Sermon on the Mount is is so difficult for us. 
because mm-hmm. it counteracts the way well, we would normally act. Right. Yeah. Right. And I've heard it said, you know, that uh, the the path to hell is a paved highway. Yeah. And the and the and the and the uh, stone walkway to to heaven is is covered by grass and weeds. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, because if you even stop to consider with the ministry of Jesus, um, when Jesus was performing miracles and feeding people bread and fish, uh, give gave gave everyone a free meal. Everyone was fed. No one left hungry. I mean, if they did, it was their own fault. You know, he Man. fed over. Five, to put this in perspective, by the time you count women and children, you're talking about a, a crowd of nearly 20,000 people. That would be like a modern-day coliseum of people. Mm-hmm. The Greensboro Coliseum holds 18,000 people. Wow. So uh, you're talking about, I mean, I think the RNC Center in Raleigh where the Carolina Hurricanes and NC State plays, uh, that's somewhere around 18,000 people. You're talking about 20,000 oh, okay. people. That were fed with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish that came from a child's knapsack that his mom packed for him for lunch. And Jesus mm-hmm. fed the entire crowd with just that. I mean that this just blows your mind. It does. When you when you see the when you put that into perspective, that's that's impressive. Amazing. And everyone was filled. I mean they had baskets left over. Um, this was like the the miracle of manna from heaven performed all over again um, for the people. And so when that was going on, everybody, there were crowds of people coming to see Jesus. But then he started preaching the gospel, mm-hmm. and the crowds diminished. The well, yeah, majority he, he, of people left. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't he say, um, to, to be my disciple, you must uh, eat of my flesh, and, the, and many of us, Many of the people following said, whoa, this is a hard saying. What's he saying? What's he talking about? Yeah, and obviously he was talking symbolically. He was right. talking about the, the communion, the Passover, the last Passover mm-hmm. he would share. But then he's, he's relating that even symbolically to his death and the shedding of blood in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. By his stripes we are healed. He even The resurrection is even in Isaiah 53. There's a passage of scripture. I mean, if you're going to have a person die, but then God prolongs his days, how do you explain that? I mean, there were ancient Jewish interpreters that tried to wrap their minds. I mean, they were they were <laughs> beating their brains trying to figure out how that can happen. How do you have a guy dying and then he's prolonged his and God prolongs his days? Makes no sense. Right. But right. ah, the resurrection happens Easter Sunday. You know, uh, it makes sense. That's the fulfillment of these prophecies we see in Jesus. So it's all pointing to that. So he's given them the gospel, but the problem is they don't want to hear that. As long as you're giving people bread and fish and you're giving gifts, you know, they're going to love you. They're going to want to be there. But when you start preaching the truth of God, you may lose crowds. And isn't that what we kind of see today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's definitely telling where our hearts are in America nowadays. It, really it is. is. Very much so. And that's why I've said all in all I mean people have criticized me for this, people have, have badmouthed me for this, but I stand by it. We are not going to save the church by fancy strategies and business models. 
We're going to save the church by moving of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, by preaching the gospel and, and waiting for the move, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how it comes. Yeah. If you look back yeah. throughout history, when these great revivals have come, it's not as if they sat down and, and come up with a 12-point plan to, to bring revival. It came by the, them them submitting themselves, by individuals submitting themselves to the Lord and God's will, praying for a move of the Holy Spirit, being willing and being ready when the Spirit did move, preaching mm-hmm. the gospel and, and a moving of the Holy Spirit. That's mm-hmm. where revivals are found. Yeah. I heard of a, I heard of a, a story about a revival the other day. Um, I think it was in 1850, I think. Might have been. It was around there anyway. Um, one uh, store owner, store um, uh, he owned a store there that was uh, uh, open during lunchtime, and so he would he he closed the doors and would start praying um, at lunchtime, and then more people started showing up, and more people started showing up, and and uh, throughout the next year or two years, I think it was. Um, by the time it was all done, they had the whole that whole city community, city uh, where all the uh, commerce was going on, would be shut down from eleven until two, and they had a massive revival awakening mm. happening just every day. Um, it was it was really kind of neat hearing the story, and I guess that that same revival or that same. Uh, prayer meeting was was spread um once people heard of it in other places they kept doing it and doing it at the same time and so it just spread throughout the throughout the country absolutely and it can happen again yeah yeah i just think we need to be in the right be in the right mind um i think it falls down to um praying Praying the right, praying in alignment with God, praying for a revival. Yeah, yeah and being submissive to His will, and uh, you yeah. know, and and really believing that God has the power, being open to the move of the Holy Spirit. That's a big part of it too. Yeah. So we already covered this part, but a little bit. But knowing this truth, should we be surprised by the low numbers in churches, especially as the day of the Lord draws near? No. No, I mean the Bible tells us, you know, Paul tells us that even this that there's there's coming a day where people will, um, the tickling of the ears. Uh, you know, this is just coming off yep. uh, memory uh, that they want to hear truths that tickle their ears and and uh, mm-hmm. stray from the truths that that are of God. And um, yeah, it's truths that make them more, or or, uh, or st- sermons that make them feel good. Yeah, but 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 just tickle the ear and and don't pierce the heart. Yeah. Or, or sermons that tell us how good we are, and you know, and listen, I, I understand. There's a difference between being positive and and being heretical. There, there's there's a difference there. I'm a very positive yeah. person. I, I believe preaching on heaven. I believe preaching encouraging messages best. You know, but we've got to be honest because I think knowing the truth of God and His salvation provides us happiness, positivity, and hope that nothing else can provide. So what does Jesus tell us what does Jesus tell us to look for when deciphering whether a prophet is genuine or false? Well, obviously the message is important and and yeah. uh, the, the message is a big part of that. But uh, false prophets uh, don this sheep clothing 
to disguise the fact that they are ravaging wolves, masquerading as true disciples. Well, Jesus says that a prophet is known by his fruit, character, and behavior. By the way, Aristotle said the exact same thing. You know, when he talks about the uh, the logos, uh, the the logic of the message, he talks about the pathos, the passion and con- compassion and concern that a person has for the audience, and then uh, the ethos, the moral integrity and character that the person has. So Jesus yeah. is saying the same thing that Aristotle said in this regard: that your character matters. John picks up on this. Uh, he says in 1 John 4, 2-3, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming even now is already in the world. Uh, so you have that. And then we see in, in, um, in Jesus saying here, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, uh, will enter the kingdom of God. So there are individuals out there uh, charismatic, not talking about spiritual gifts in this regard, but talking about popular people who uh, invigorate individuals and who are able to make strong connections with people. Now, me, I'm kind of more like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. You know, so I'm one of those people. <laughs> I don't know if you've watched that. I'm one of those awkward people. You know, so. But it's not about how charismatic we can become. It's not about how many connections we can make. It's about truth, moral integrity, and the compassion we have for individuals. Mm-hmm. Are we producing the fruit of God? And it's not something we can produce. It's something that God produces in us. Mm. Yeah. So we are. We kind of touched on the next on the second section of this question, but I'll ask it anyway. What role does charisma play in determining one's authenticity? Yeah, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with with having charisma. Charisma is a is a gift of God. Some people mm-hmm. some people have charisma oozing from their pores. It's not that charisma is a bad thing, but to quote the illustrious Spider Man. With great power comes great responsibility. Right. So, so if God has given you charisma, you've got to be careful with it. One of the things we've got to do is make sure that we're not bringing people to ourselves, or be it bringing people to God. And that's what we're supposed to be doing is is disciples, anyhow, making more disciples of Christ. Right. Well, and it also goes to the other side of it too. Give the 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 gift of hermitism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Being a hermit. Being a hermit. <laughs> <You> know, we, <laughs> we're called to go out and make disciples, you know, and so so yeah, either either side of that there's a balance. We got to be somewhere in there. When I was doing my undergrad at Gardner-Webb University down in Bowling Springs, North Carolina, there was a, a professor who told us that that there are four individuals you need to watch for. Four leaders, types of leaders you need to watch for in Christian ministry, that they're very, very bad leaders. One is the showboat. This is the charismatic person who is able to whip up a crowd, but there's no moral integrity. There's also the monk that you mentioned. This is a hermit who stays in in a locked room and key, never seen rest of the week, but is seen you know on Sundays, and that's it. The third is the doubting Thomas, the individual who doubts everyone. And the fourth one is the general Patton, the dictator who dictates everything and, and, and 
doesn't listen to anyone else and it's just a aye aye sir that's all you hear and it's my way or the highway obviously that's not what you want those those four models i have seen countless times they lead to bad ends and so there's a blend as you mentioned that we've got to have yeah yeah i've laid witness to each and every one of those um (laughs) Some large churches, you got the the pastor that's a hermit that uh, hides out. The only way to access him is through, you know, multiple levels of emails through different people to get to him to be able to ask him a question. And to me, that's like, that's not a pastor. It, don't don't call yourself a pastor if that's what if that's going to be because you're not you're not pastoring. You're not shepherding the flock. You're that's you're just a a speaker. You're exactly. a really good speaker. You know, and nothing against how they do it just stop calling yourself a pastor you know yeah. start calling yourself a speaker you got to make yourself vulnerable in dealing with people dealing with ministry you're going to get your hands dirty so you yeah. got to be out there you know you got to be out there in um, on the front lines with the people if yeah. you're going to truly pastor yeah i agree so what role does fruit checking play in determining the authenticity of a prophet or a leader I think it's very important. I mean, well, not just me. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters more what Jesus right. thinks. You know, Jesus indicates that that is extremely important because just go back and see what he says uh, in the passage of Scripture. And he says, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles in the same way every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit? And he goes on to say that a good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. And then he, then he goes even further to say that every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So you recognize them by their fruit. You know, And I kind of wonder if, if cut down and thrown in the fire, if that's not necessarily talking not only about eternal issues, but if maybe that's even talking about the fact that eventually the truth is going to come out. Um Truth has a way of coming out in the end, mm. and um, that's interesting. That's interesting because you know we just went through we went through a major fall of a of an evangelist, and we also or an apologist, and then we also had another apologist to come out. It, the, I mean, there's multiple that we've seen coming down off of this, and I think I think that's I think that's something important that we should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Now, my question is. The fruit from some of these seem to be right and seem to be good for a long time. Did we get complacent in judging the fruit, or did they just get better at being able to produce false fruit? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. Mm. Um you know, I, I do think as we've looked, you know, and of course we're talking about Ravi. I do think there were signs beforehand, and when you have when you have a big organization, when money is flowing, money a lot of times, and the reason why people love money is not only to have nice things, but people love to have a lot of money because it brings power. If a person has a lot of money and resources, you know that person can sometimes get away with more things and. Than people who don't. I mean, that's just the way the world works. Um, I do think that there were were people in in leadership who knew what was going on, 
and and tried to bring changes. But then again, they they were laid off. This is a consistent thing when you see that there is a. Um, there's there's an echo chamber set around this leader, just like the pastors you were talking about. They can't be reached by the congregation. There are these different levels keeping them away from ordinary people. You have to kind of wonder about a structure like that, and want you know because yep. abuse can easily happen in a in yep. a scenario that was like my that. Concern. Yeah, it can easily happen something like that. So. Yeah, but in the end, this is what Jesus is telling us. I think that we see that this found in Scripture multiple times, that you can fool some people some of the time, but you can never fool God any of the time. And eventually mm-hmm. the truth is going to be brought out. And um, don't think that you can... And this would, this would go out to anyone out there who is, is using ministry as a means of, of abusing individuals. Don't think, you, you might be getting away with some things now, but don't think you will forever, because God sees, God knows. Truth's coming out eventually. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. this you know, we all need salvation, we all need forgiveness, but when it comes to using and abusing people, God's not going to be mocked. He's not going to put up with that forever. He may allow it for a season, but eventually, as John the Baptist says, Jesus says it here, the axe is at the root of the tree already, about to be swung, yeah. about to be cut there you down. Go. And yeah. this is a, not only do you find it here, but there's other prophecies in the Old Testament that say the same thing. The axe is at the root of the tree, about to cut it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> why are verses 21 and 20 through 23 among the most frightening in the entire Bible? <laughs> I think yeah. they're the most frightening. I, I don't know about anybody else, but I think they're terrifying if you think about it. That, because someone yeah. thinks they have a right relationship with God. They they think that they're doing everything right. But then they're, they're here when the day when they stand before God, depart from me, you lawbreakers, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. The never knew you part is the most important. I was talking with someone not long ago. We were talking about, you know, we throw around this word spiritual but not religious. You know, I think that's problematic. But I think what's intended by that (laughs) is that a person has a relationship with God. Now, obviously, their doctrines are important. Theology is important. Bellator Christie is built on the notion of the importance of theology and apologetics. But I think if we understand spirituality as being the relationship we have with God, that is the most important thing that any of us could have, is that personal relationship with God. So it is possible for someone to be a member of a church, to do all the Christian things that go along with church membership, but never have an authentic relationship with Christ. So then their name may be on the church roll. They may have sat in the same pew for multiple generations. But if their heart is not right with Christ, they're going to hear on that day, I'm sorry, I never knew you. You may have given a lot of tithes and offerings. You may have been on every committee possible. You may have had all these different things you've done for me, but you never had a relationship with me. You never entered the new covenant. And so because of that, you must depart from me. Mm-hmm. All right. And you know you got the 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 line in there. Didn't we prophesy in your name, and didn't we cast out you know demons in your name, and and such? And it's like, then that tells me that that gifting of a of prophecy 
or or casting out demons or healing people was given not only for those people that you were helping out with those, but also to deepen your faith and deepen yeah. your understanding and deepen the person that was doing the work, their relationship with God. And it says in the scripture that there comes a time where God's not won't strive with man all the time or oh, for, yeah. forever. And and when you think about that, if you parallel that to this this end of the scripture, you start understanding that those gifts may have been given to you to point you to God to to help you understand that that God is giving this gift, not you. You're not doing this in your power. You're doing this in God's power. It should be humbling you and drawing you into uh, where that is. And I think that may be the very thing that that you bring. You can even bring up the picture of uh, of Moses and Pharaoh. It says in there that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By being kind, be loving, be persistent with him. And it was a resistance of God that hardened the heart of Pharaoh that turned him away. And I think yeah. that may be even part of this. I think you have a great point. I hadn't thought, considered that, and I think you're absolutely right. It may be that doing... I mean, because listen, if, if a person is seeking after God, seeking a relationship with God, and God moves in miraculous fashions, it is very hard to doubt. It's not. I'm not saying it's impossible. Yeah. But it's harder, a lot harder to doubt when you see God moving. Curtis, I got to tell you, I've been in chaplaincy ministry since last September, and the things I've seen in these past few months that God has done is just remarkable. And I'm not saying that I have, by no means am I saying that I have a super type of faith. I don't, uh, you know, I don't at all. But when you see God do these things, it just makes it a whole lot more difficult to allow doubt in. I'm not not impossible, but it makes it more challenging. And I think that uh, God, by doing these miraculous things for individuals through individuals, is a way of bringing them to faith. I mean, for instance, God used God spoke through a donkey to bring Balaam, you know, back. And if God can speak through a donkey and kind of go into a personal private text we had today i won't mention that but i just did but won't mention anything more about that which i by the way i found that text hilarious <laughs> but if god can use a donkey to speak through a donkey to bring Balaam back to a somewhat right relationship then you know he can do anything he pleases right right yeah and, and that was kind of my why i was making that statement was was just a, th a thought that I had about it was, what if God was allowing this for to to for you? What if what if God was giving you these gifts? Maybe not even for the people you were healing. Maybe maybe they already are believers. Maybe that was for you to turn back to God. I agree. And I think so it's possible. we gotta we gotta always be aware of our situational awareness, surrounding awareness, and spiritual awareness we got to be aware of where we are and and where god is at all times i think they see the same thing in near-death experiences 
I think God, Ooh, yeah. near-death experiences is God's is is a, is an apologetic that God uses to bring people to faith because uh, sure. I mean there may be still some people who go through the experience and think ah it's a hallucination. Well, that was one heck of a hallucination if you actually saw something yeah. outside the room and were able to report it and it was exactly accurate as you reported it. Yeah. You know, but still, there's some people who are even when having that experience who are still going to you know doubt. But I think God allowing these like visions overseas, people people come to faith by yeah. visions. People are coming to faith by these near death experiences. Um, these are ways miracles that God is is. Uh, performing that that are bringing people to a stronger faith so apologetics is part of it theology is part of it but the move of god is a very powerful way and even through theology and apologetics god moves and and that's what we're trusting god's the power of god's spirit to move to bring people to faith and i will say this brian i will i will say this as a as apologists we need the holy spirit more Oh, absolutely. Than, than we than we could ever even imagine to be able to be able to defend, uh, defend Christ, defend the gospel, defend defend God's word, um, and I think it's complacent and uh, irresponsible if we go out and speak these truths without first asking the Spirit to give us the words and the wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been a good one. Uh, this has been one heck of a, a podcast series. Um, I've enjoyed every bit of it. Hey, um, Curtis, before we close, I, I, I want to ask you one question. Um, sure. Because you've asked me a lot of questions. I, I want to ask you something. W- what is the biggest thing that you've taken from this this study, um, this series? W- what is something that really resonates with you, one of the biggest issues or lessons or or insights that may have come out of this series and i would even challenge this for our listeners to to really stop and contemplate the same the same issue it's that same question what i guess what i guess i get out of it is god's heart for his people god's Mm -hmm. heart for the believer in he he's and, and the consistency. So in the Old Testament, he's 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 progressively moving his people further and further away from the common culture of that day, and he's making them more and more stand out. You know, stand out and stand away from the crowd, so to speak. And then Jesus comes and and tells the depths of those truths and those basically rules that he was making and and how it brings comfort how it brings direction how it brings um the fullness of god into our lives i I, there's a lot to it that i could keep going but that's probably the biggest thing absolutely yeah i think for me personally it it would be the, the level of emphasis that he places on God moving through us because you know when I first read mm. the Sermon on the Mount, I, I kind of thought of it as being a list of rules and regulations that we have to do. But mm. I see the more we've the, what I've seen through this series, what we've done through this series for Bellator Christie, is that the focus isn't necessarily on what we can do, but what God can do through us. And it seems mm. to be the focus that He's placing on this message. It's yeah. totally revolutionized the way I've approached the Sermon on the Mount. That's good, yeah. 
and and the idea that he's bringing these kingdom principles and applying them in an earthly fashion just it's it's just amazing to me absolutely um, you know there's going to be a time in heaven where i'm going to ask if i can just watch a bunch of replays because <laughs> i want to see this stuff you know i really do but it'd be so cool to just sit back and watch the actual resurrection when it took place on the first easter oh, sunday <laughs> Yeah, when when the and when the stone blows away, you just everybody jumps in the theater. Popcorn yeah. goes everywhere. <laughs> one one real quick thing. I know we're out of time, but one real quick thing. I think it's the Gospel of Mark. Here's where the original languages bring out some concepts that we don't see from the English translations. My understanding is is that the word Iteo, it maybe a different word. Anyhow, the the or arrow or anyhow, whatever the word is, I don't have it before me. But the word for the stone was rolled away. My understanding is, is that it, is that the Greek language appears as if it were picked up and moved, placed over, as if someone picked it up and moved it, instead of it just being rolled away. It's almost as if it was lifted up off its foundation and placed to the side. Mm. Yeah. There's there's so much that comes to this time period and and I think as all as Christians we really need to just take time. There you go. We need to take time uh reading the end of Mark, reading the end of Luke, reading the end of Matthew and getting a well-rounded scope of the resurrection and John the, too. You know, the, yeah, the time in the garden of Gethsemane um as they move into the the Passover meal and and then uh, you know, getting into the resurrection. I think it's good that we get a good rounded scope of that and just ponder it and think about it and know that it's God's greatest achievement is the re- is the is the conquering of over death. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, So drawn, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. 
Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to True North, the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of BellatorChristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today.